of Revelation, and hence the title that we have this morning, Maranatha, Come Lord Jesus. And we will uh, get into that phrase a little bit this morning and see just exactly what that word means and what its uh, implications are for us today. Kind of uh, the book of Revelation ends very appropriately in reminding us for the reason for the entire uh, book that we've been studying these many weeks is that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And may He come sooner rather than later. And uh, the book of Revelation, or we do, certainly don't want to have studied, I think this is number 94, we don't want to have studied the book of Revelation for 94 Sundays and not know, be able to tell somebody what it's about and who the author is and those kinds of things. So here's a slide that we probably should have had about 94 weeks ago, but I just made it this week. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've talked a lot about that, uh, this, that this is a book that gives us the complete, completed revelation of Jesus Christ, at least what the Lord wants us to know in His Word anyway at this point. I don't think that this uh, that we necessarily know everything that there is to know about God from the Bible, but we certainly know everything that He wants us to know at this point is contained in the Scriptures, and then in more things will be revealed about who He is when we spend eternity with Him, of course. But this book in particular is the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we've said many times, it's not the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the mark of the beast or the tribulation period, any of those things. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ and it tells us the events that lead up to his second coming to this earth to establish his kingdom. It was written by the apostle John, the one whom uh, Jesus loved is said uh, of him in the gospels. And there's not a lot of dispute about that among uh, at least serious scholarship anyway. John the Apostle wrote this book. He wrote it from the Isle of Patmos, just as it was uh, stated in the first chapter there when he was exiled there. He wrote it to seven specific churches that were in existence at that time. This, the book of Revelation is not just some kind of uh, religious book or mystical book and, oh, we've got to look for uh, the hidden meaning in every, every aspect of it. No, it, it, it's a book that, is, that happens to be about the future, but it was written to people who lived at that time, not, not much unlike Paul's letters that he wrote to various churches or various people, Timothy and Titus. He wrote some some letters to. This is very much the same thing. Uh, God the Father sent Jesus Christ to give the message to an angel who delivered it to the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he was to write it to these seven churches. And it happened in 95 or 96, AD 95 or 96, somewhere in that, in that uh, time range. And the purpose as we've said, is to reveal the events leading to the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ establishing his kingdom upon the earth is kind of the 
is the main thrust of the purpose of the Bible. Uh, how is that going to come to pass? How is God going to make life on this earth the way that he originally intended it to be? Well, the book of Revelation tells us the events that will lead up to Christ coming again to the earth and establishing his kingdom. Really, the key verse of, the, of this book that encapsulates this idea is Revelation 1.7. says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And why is this book being written? Kind of the, the key principle for this book is that as believers... We ought to be, we need to be living a godly life because Jesus is coming again. And we find ourselves here at the very end in the prologue section of this book. It's, it's easily broken down into three, three sections, not three equal sections. It seems as if perhaps God or the apostles didn't attend a modern English uh, writing class where each point of the outline has to have it's all got to be equally divided up and these kinds of things the bible isn't necessarily that way uh john was to write the things which you have seen the things which are and the things which are to take place after these things revelation 119 uh, the things which you have seen this vision of the risen christ We'll see this again uh, emphasized in the closing verses. Who does this book come from? Who is the authority behind it? Well, that's chapter 1, the, the vision that John had of the risen Christ. He was to write about the things which are. That's the messages to the churches, often uh, kind of a lost section of the book of Revelation, if you will. But as we saw, very important uh, letters to the churches that get to the key principle of the entire writing of the book. We don't have this book just so we can impress our friends about how many horns are on the beast and the, the heads and all of these kinds, this kind of strange imagery that is given here. That's not the reason why we have this. It is to motivate us to godly living because Christ is coming again. And that's essentially the messages that were given to the churches in a nutshell, that uh, most of them were told some area of their life that needed to improve in the, the life of the church, that uh, these churches had various sin patterns and these kinds of things, or sins that were going on within their congregations that needed to be corrected. And then, of course, the main body of the, of the book is chapters 4 through the end here in 22, where we have in, in large measure the events of the tribulation. First, a scene in heaven, verses, chapters 4 and 5. Why are these events going to take place? What is the implementation of them? That's chapters 4 and 5. The wrath coming from God upon the earth. And uh, from studying the rest of the Bible, we know that the main point of the tribulation is not just God pouring out his wrath and punishing the earth for being so wicked. Well, that's part of it. It is to drive the nation of Israel to trust in Jesus as their Messiah because it is only then 
that he will come again and establish his kingdom. You can see that in Matthew 23, uh, verse 37, I believe it is, that Jesus tells the leadership of Israel, you know, you're not going to see me again until, essentially, until you believe in me. Uh, And that's a true precept from the Old Testament as well, the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, chapter 14. They have to believe, and then the Messiah will come again to the earth. And these last uh, few weeks here, we've been wrapping things up with the prologue, John essentially telling his audience uh, the things that he has told them, (laughs) if you will, wrapping it up for them. And today, uh, we'll do a brief review of what we looked at last week, these uh, verses, verses 18 through 21 can be broken down into the prophecy, that's verses 18 and 19, uh, adding to or taking away and and punishments that could come because of that in the prophecy. And then we have this promise in verse 20 and the great provision that God has given to us in verse 21. We'll begin with a, a brief review of last week. Verse 18 of Revelation 22 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And, th- and that uh, these Verses being right at the end are are a very stark reminder to us of several things. The importance of of God's Word and how it ought to be treated. We should not take away from these verses, as we saw last time, that that somehow our, our salvation is in jeopardy if we mistranslate words of the Bible or if, even if we misinterpret them. If we're approaching the Scriptures as God's word. He understands who we are as fallen people and that we're not going to be perfect. Uh, so it certainly isn't talking in, uh, in those terms that, you know, uh, <laughs> if it were true that we could lose our salvation if we make a mistake in interpretation, it might behoove us to not even read or try to interpret the things. If that, if that were the case, that certainly isn't, isn't what is being said here, but it does remind us of the importance of the Bible, the importance of understanding how to interpret the Bible and and how we ought to interpret the Bible. We saw last time that when we uh, approach the book of Revelation consistently and understand it literally, not that not that it doesn't use figures of speech and these kinds of things, but the author of Scripture everywhere is always trying to get across a meaning. And he has that meaning in his head when he is, when he is communicating through the written word. It, it is our goal to get to that meaning. And the authors of Scripture, thankfully, are not robotic and write the Bible like a textbook. That could get rather boring. So they use different methods, figures of speech, poetry. Some, many times it is just a narrative of certain events, but it's always trying to, to communicate some truth to us, and it behooves us to understand what that truth is. That, that is essentially a literal 
uh, consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. That, that is the, that's the end goal of that. And when we use that method in Revelation, we, we come to the conclusion that this is speaking of, of future events. And it's also a reminder to not add to the words of the Bible, uh, which is typically what legalists will do. The Jewish people in Deuteronomy 4.2 were reminded to not add to the law of God. Uh, don't, essentially, don't do exactly what the Pharisees did in between the two testaments. Build a hedge around the law to make sure we don't even get close to the law, essentially, is what that does. That just puts a barrier between you and the things that God has, has told you to do. So we want to avoid legalism. Uh, legalism does not uh, save our souls. It does not draw us closer to God. It does not do anything but put a barrier between us and God and his word. Uh, and essentially, with the plagues, he's speaking of primarily the second half of the tribulation. And so uh, we get to the point at the bottom, who is who does these kinds of things? Again, it's not... Uh, uh, making a mistake in interpretation, or even you know applying some kind of legalistic standard to your to your life, uh, it's not that you're going to be cut off uh, if you happen to to do that. Uh, this is speaking of unbelievers, as we as we will. It becomes very clear in the second warning: Do not take away from the words of the book, verse nineteen of this. Prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in the book. This is something that will happen to unbelievers, people who have not uh, trusted in Christ for their salvation. Also a reminder to not take away from the scriptures uh, and in terms of the law of God and, and the way that he wants us to live that reminds us of licentiousness and how that needs to play no part in our lives. We don't uh, just kind of give up and say, oh, what's the point? Uh, you know, I, I'm saved. I'm just going to live how I want to live. Uh, that, that is a very bad attitude to have. That will end in judgment. It can end in judgment in this life. Uh, we have studied in the past the consequences of sin are built right into the sins and can lead to consequences in this life. Certainly at the judgment seat of Christ, we're, we're all going to find out how our sin uh, kept us from service opportunities, essentially is what it's going to boil down to. And sin, we are going to give an account for how, how we have lived our lives. That is not what this is speaking to. This is a warning essentially to unbelievers. Don't mess with the book of, of Revelation. This is an important book. It is talking about the culmination of history itself. And you ought not to, to uh, add to it or take away from it. And so we looked at uh, some, of, some examples of this last time, this happening in the world, uh, one individual talking about creating a Bible with AI, and then then it'll be a great religion if a computer comes up with it rather than God himself. 
Uh, we looked at kind of the, this book by Carl Truman that I highly recommend uh, listening to, if not reading, about the strange new world and how people like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud are trying to create a, a system of thought, a system of theology, essentially, in a world where there is no God. That is certainly taking away from the scriptures. And the end result is very much what we see in the world working its way out today uh, with all of the the alphabet soup and all of those kinds of folks having a real grip on the national narrative, if not politics itself. Uh, And we saw the idea of false teachers and and kind of uh, the implications of buying into... uh, uh, social gospel efforts and these kinds of things is, are certainly taking away from the scriptures, taking away from the gospel itself and changing it from believing in, understanding that you're a sinner, uh, understanding that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you need to believe in him. That is, that's the gospel. We hear gospel thrown around for this, that, and the other thing. But that is the good news, that we have a Savior who died for us. And when we add to or take away from the Scriptures, oftentimes uh, the gospel becomes a social gospel, uh, digging wells and uh, giving food to people, making sure they have water and these kinds of things. But uh, as we saw last time, many times the, the foundation of this thinking is Marxism, and the social gospel is really just a, a means of spreading social justice. But uh, the scriptures make very clear that the church isn't to be about those things. The church is to be about uh, telling people how to have eternal life through faith in Christ and then how God expects us to live. Give unbelievers the gospel and teach believers how to live by means of the Spirit. And so we saw that this passage is not saying that uh, believers can lose their salvation. That is not possible according to the Scriptures at any rate. Salvation is an objective fact. It is not based on uh, a subjective level of good works or a subjective level of of how many sins can I commit and still get in? Now, it is, it is cut and dry. It is black and white. Yes or no? Have you trusted in the Jesus of the Bible, the second person of the Trinity who stepped out of eternity, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died for your sins? Are you trusting in that and that alone? If the answer to that question is yes, you have eternal life, uh, according to the scriptures. And we have our, our little mnemonic there that we can be sure, 100% sure, not, not I'm pretty sure, or yeah, I think I've got about a 99% chance or so. I'm pretty confident. And it, no, it, it's 100%. You can be 100% sure one way or the other. Are you in or are you out? We can be sure because the Scripture says so. The Scripture tells us about 
at 200 times Old and New Testament that people are saved by faith in God and His provision for our sins. Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't, oh, I'm so glad you asked, and get out his scroll that goes from here to the ground. No, he tells him one single condition. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Belief, trust is the thing that gives you salvation. Uh, furthermore, it's built, it's, uh, salvation is based on the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he died for the sins of the world. First John 2.2 tells us not a select group, not this group and not that group. No, all of the sins of the world were paid for by the person of Jesus Christ. It rests completely on Christ. It, praise the Lord, it doesn't rest on me. I, I would lose it uh, almost instantaneously if it did. But it rests completely on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we don't have to wonder whether or not we are, are part of a select group that has been uh, chosen into heaven. No, every single person is invited to salvation through faith in Christ. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Every single person on this planet is invited to trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for their salvation. So these verses are not contradictory. God doesn't contradict himself. We may do that from time to time. In fact, in our theology, we may have contradictions between one verse and another verse, but I can assure you that God does not contradict himself. He cannot lie. He cannot tell us in one place of the Bible that we pass from death into life John 5, 24, at the instant that we believe, and in another place say, oh yeah, you passed from death into life, but if you misinterpret Revelation, you're going to lose it again. And then you'll have to, to re-figure it out. That's not how, how God operates. He does not contradict himself. So clearly, these verses are directed towards unbelievers as a warning to keep your hands off of the book of Revelation. This is, this is my word, God is saying, to the churches so that they can be prepared to live in the meantime before I come again. That is the entirety of the purpose. And make no mistake that God has promised that Jesus Christ will come again. Notice verse 20 of Revelation 22, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies uh, is the one who is saying this. Again, our, our uh, red letter versions of the Bible uh, sometimes don't get this correct. Uh, this has really been Jesus speaking for much of this uh, passage, really from verse 12 all the way down through here in verse 19 is Jesus speaking, and then there's going to be a little break. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. This is, this is Christ speaking. 
And he is emphasizing that he, second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, is the one who is delivering this message, a tremendous reminder to us about uh, the book of Revelation specifically and the Bible in general, that this is God's word to us. Joseph Seiss, I read this quote last time. He was a a theologian from, oh, I believe he was late 19th century, early 20th century. I'm pretty sure he died very early in the uh, 1900s. He says in his uh, book entitled The Apocalypse, essentially a commentary on the book of Revelation, he says, thus the very God of all inspiration and of all inspired men reiterates and affirms the highest authority for all that is herein written. Either then this book is nothing but a base and blasphemous forgery, unworthy of the slightest respect of men, and especially unworthy of a place in in the sacred canon, or it is one of the most directly inspired and authoritative writings ever given. And of course, the latter is true. The book of Revelation is most obviously the most inspired uh, or the most obviously inspired book of the Bible. It is clearly coming from God to Jesus Christ, to an angel, to the apostle John, to you and to me a direct line that can easily be traced. And that's why it's so often in the writing itself reminds us of who, who it is coming from. It is either God's word or it is a complete fraud essentially is, is the choice. Uh, And of course it comes from Jesus Christ He gives this word so that we would live in light of his imminent return. That is, that's the entire point of the writing. And uh, we see this same kind of argument uh, here in a couple weeks when we start our our next book, we'll, we'll run into the same uh, kind of arguments, you know, who wrote this book? Oh, it's just somebody pretending to be Paul. It was actually written 200 years after uh, Paul lived in this earth and, and these kinds of ideas that come from, from critical scholars who more often than not just want to cast doubt on the scriptures rather than help us understand them. That's, that's a, real, a real issue. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Man, that is, that is quite, a, quite a reminder to us of the importance of the church. The church, as wonderful as our food and coffee is and these kinds of things, it's not just a time or a place that we just come and enjoy food and get to be with some of our friends. No, we are here because we are the pillar in support of the truth. And if ever there was a time that the truth needed a pillar in support, it is certainly in our world today, as we saw with Karl Marx and his uh, and the rest of these uh, philosophers and their their incredible influence that they have had over the world to change our minds about the truth, that the truth 
in the 21st century is no longer an objective fact that's, that's true, whether I believe it or not. No, truth has been completely upended and changed into something that's relative. Whatever you think in your mind, well, that's the truth. If somebody else thinks something uh, over on the other side that is uh, completely different than what I think, well, hey, you got to respect that. That's that's their truth, and and everybody's truth is is equally valid. That, of course, is completely contrary to the concept of truth. Truth is an objective fact, whether we agree with it or not. Jesus Christ says that he is the truth and he's not, uh, it, uh, no one else claims, uh, makes that claim, at least with any uh, veracity or truth uh, backing it up. Mohammed uh, isn't the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth and those two stand in opposition to one another. And according to Paul's words to Timothy, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So that informs us that we have to be grounded in God's word and understand that it is coming from Christ and delivered to us by these men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I mean, there's just, we could go into uh, a couple weeks of <laughs> uh, rabbit trail, if we wanted to, about how then we should treat God's word and and things that the church ought to be doing, and we'll get that uh, as we make our way into our next uh, study. We'll see some more of that kind of thing. But Jesus Christ is the one who is testifying to these things, and He says. One more time, in case we didn't get it uh, the first, oh, I don't know, 10 times or so that it's been announced in this book, that he is coming quickly. And so what exactly does this mean? If our uh, timeline is accurate, that, that John wrote this in AD 95 or 96, boy, we're uh, approaching 2,000 years since these words have been spoken. What exactly does this mean that, yes, I am coming quickly? Well, we saw, uh, we have seen that that what this is getting to is that the time is imminent, uh, that he is coming quickly. And essentially, that term for quickly can have two various definitions that that really support one another when he does come it is going to be quick we saw we have seen that uh, when we studied the end of revelation 19 where he comes to the earth it does happen rather quickly Uh, matthew 24 makes it very clear that when he comes to the earth it will happen quickly but it also is an indication to us that that his coming is imminent uh, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Uh, Because the church age, this parentheses on our timeline, could end at any time with the rapture of the church. That is an absolute imminent 
event could happen literally at any moment. And personally, I believe that shortly after that rapture takes place, the tribulation will begin and then Christ will come again to the earth. So this, this portion of the timeline here is imminent. It could happen at any time. Uh, frankly, it wasn't imminent back here before Christ came to the earth because Jesus needed to die for the sins of the world for him to be able to establish his kingdom upon the earth because it's a righteous kingdom. And uh, people will need the transferred righteousness of Christ in order to be uh, in this kingdom. So he had to die. Uh, Once that took place, once he paid for the sins of the world, died, was buried, rose again, uh, then these events, this portion of our timeline become imminent because everything has taken place. Uh, We find ourselves in this church age that could end at any moment with the rapture of the church. So in essence, it seems that he is kind of uh, pointing towards the rapture of the church as this is this portion of Revelation 22 is obviously geared directly towards the church. And he is coming quickly for us. That will happen uh, very quickly, and it can happen imminently. Both of those definitions of the, of the Greek term that's translated quickly certainly apply to the rapture of the church. And this is actually emphasized here uh, where, he's, where he says it's, that he is coming quickly Amen. That is kind of uh, is a, a means of emphasis. And the word yes there at the beginning is also. So the phrase I am coming quickly is, is bookended with two words that emphasize the truth of this statement. That's very unlike the rest of the times that, that it's used here in Revelation to emphasize it even more. That yes, surely he is coming again quickly. This rapture for, of the church, as we have studied many times in the past, is an imminent event. It can happen at any time. As in our scripture reading, we see that Paul tells some of the people of his audience, some of the people who will read these words, that they're not all going to die. They could, uh, they could be raptured, changed in an instant and taken to be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.50 Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, previously unrevealed truth. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That's quickly. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. There's a lot of, uh, well, it's not really controversy, but the, the meaning of that, the last trumpet, it doesn't necessarily mean at the seventh trumpet. Remember, there was a trumpet judgment, uh, the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. It doesn't uh, mean that it is at the, the seventh 
trumpet. Uh, That's not necessarily the last trumpet. It's certainly not the end of the tribulation, as we saw uh, in our study. Uh, There were still seven bold judgments to come. So that's not that's not the end. Uh, This phrase, last trumpet, is uh, a, a trumpets are oftentimes used in the scriptures as signaling devices. This is the end of the church age is what is being signified by this trumpet being sounded here. Uh, And so at the end of the church age, a trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. This can happen at any moment. In fact, Paul thought it was possible in his life, according to, or at least the life of his audience, that he said that some of them uh, will not sleep, but all will be changed. That is certainly true for our generation. It could possibly be true that some of us won't die. We will see the rapture of the church in our lives, but we will all be changed. First Thessalonians 4 speaks of this same event, verses 13 through 18, where the dead will be raised first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. He expressed the same idea to the Thessalonians that some of you may not die. You will be uh, caught up and taken back to the Father's house, according to John 14, kind of our three main passages for this idea of the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and John 14, the Lord himself introduces this idea that he would come again for believers and take them back to the Father's house, Jesus says in John 14. So there, by definition, there has to be some kind of a, a time delay between the rapture of the church and the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. This is uh, where we, where our consistent literal interpretation comes into play, telling us that the rapture of the church will certainly come quickly. Christ is coming for us imminently at any time he can come for us. And so since the rapture is imminent, could happen literally at any time. Uh, On our timeline, the tribulation takes place after the rapture of the church, which is imminent. Uh, The rapture does not start the church, start the tribulation, uh, but the first seal judgment starts the tribulation. But again, uh, boy, (laughs) perhaps The rapture is happening at the exact moment that the Antichrist makes himself known on the world stage. It's entirely possible. Perhaps there is some gap of time. But within the eyes of the Lord, whatever that time span is, to the Lord who has always existed, exists now, and will exist for eternity, uh, any, any time measurement that we have on this earth is a a glimpse of time. It's all uh, equal. It's all relative. A day is as a thousand years, as it's said. So if he is said to be coming quickly, 
And we're coming up on 2,000 years of time since these words have been spoken. What's the, what's the rub? Why? Why is it taking so long? And Peter addresses this issue in 2 Peter 3. The, the reason is that God is long-suffering, that he desires for people to be saved. That's why we have the church age, because God so intensely desires for people to be saved. Uh, we have seen on one of our other slides that the church age, in fact, is the longest age of any or longest time period, dispensation, if you will, of any other that has existed in human history. And we know that it will be the longest uh, dispensation before we get to the eternal state. The next dispensation, some believe that the tribulation is a different dispensation. Well, that's going to last for seven years. Uh, the kingdom will last for a thousand years. We're already uh just about to the 2,000-year point for the church age. God is certainly long-suffering. And this is what Peter is addressing, this question in 2 Peter 3. In verse 3, Peter says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." God is long-suffering, He's long-loving, and He wants people to believe in Him and have eternal life and spend life with Him for eternity as it is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So He is desirous for them to believe. That's the reason for the delay. But make no mistake, when it happens, it's going to happen uh, very quickly. And so uh, I believe that these, these, this verse here in verse 20 is speaking of Christ coming at the rapture of the church where other passages using similar phraseology are describing his second coming to the earth. John Walvoord agrees uh, when he says, Though the book of Revelation concerns itself with a broad expanse of divine dealing with men, including the time of the tribulation, the millennium, and the eternal state, for John, the important event is the coming of the Lord for him at the rapture of the church. For this his heart longs, not only because he is on the bleak island of Patmos in suffering and exile, but because of the glorious prospect which his eyes have beheld and his ears have heard. 
So God, God is long suffering, but he is going to uh, come one day. In the meantime, he wants people to be saved. In the meantime, he wants you and he wants me to live for him in this world. Notice verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. God, uh, through the author Paul, makes known this rapture of the church and the incredible uh, implication of it that death itself is being conquered. The ultimate consequence of sin is being dealt with in that. uh, So what? What does that that mean for me today? 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because God is long-suffering. He wants people to be there with Him in eternity. So you, believer, be steadfast. Be immovable. Be immovable in the truth in spite of what you hear in the media, in spite of what you may learn in school Be immovable in the truth, the truth of Scripture, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the truth of how we have salvation by trusting in Him. And uh, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, it uh, it almost seems like that is that's uh, written to uh, pastors and teachers. Sometimes it can seem like it's in like it's in vain. You're very much like a uh, like the farmer who puts the seeds in the ground and has to wait an awful long time to uh, reap the benefits of that. Many times, but it is not in vain. We are toiling for the Lord, and He is coming again for us at any. Moment And this phrase, uh, come Lord Jesus, this is uh, written in Greek here. In another place in the Bible, Paul uses this phrase, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 21 through 24, we see him actually use the word that you have probably heard, Maranatha. Uh, and again, in Revelation, this is the Greek version and in, uh, I have the wrong reference on my sheet, so I've got to look it up. 1 Corinthians 16, not 15. While those verses would be great, they wouldn't be the one I need. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21, Paul says, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Again, an emphasis that that letter is written by the Apostle Paul. Don't let anyone tell you that it's written by someone else. Uh, Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Maranatha in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16. That is actually an Aramaic phrase that is, uh, this has the same meaning as what we have in Revelation 22 here. Come, Lord Jesus. It means exactly the same thing. It's just in a different language. Uh, Aramaic, which was kind of the prominent language of the, of the area. 
leading up to uh, the time of the Greeks and the Romans. Prior to that, Aramaic was kind of the the lingua franca, if you will, of of the day, the language of the day that people dealt with that, that uh, kind of came from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they had a common language and Israelites spoke it. There's a good chance that Jesus, uh, when he was speaking to people in his orations, was speaking in Aramaic. Uh, and there's some discrepancy over this because people didn't have the microphones there to uh, record it. But nevertheless, it was the language of the day leading up to the Greeks and the Romans coming to prominence. And that's where Maranatha comes from. It's an Aramaic phrase that means our Lord come. And so uh, when you say Maranatha, it's like you're bilingual. You're calling for the Lord to come to, to us and to rescue us from this world. But yes, I am coming quickly, doesn't mean he's coming immediately, doesn't mean that that we don't have some time to live our lives, but praise the Lord, he gives us a provision in the meantime, and we see that in verse 21 of Revelation 22, where it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Grace for the saints is what is being spoken here. I think if you have a King James version of the Bible, I think it actually does say the saints there. And that is a good description for uh, who is included in the all here. It is definitely directed towards (coughs) believers. And it's directed towards the audience of the book, the churches, the, the seven churches that this was originally written to, and you and to me as people who have trusted in Christ. The NAIV uh, says God's people there. That too is a good description. Uh, most of the early earliest manuscripts say the saints, and that kind of brings up an interesting uh, idea. Well, I thought the NASB was based on the earliest manuscripts, and the King James Version was based on the majority of the of the manuscripts. Well, while that is true, uh, Bible translation is very complicated, and and our Bibles don't always fit into these neat categories that we come up with. Most of the time, yes, this is one of the cases where where they don't. Most of the they're called critical uh, Bibles based on the critical text. That's the NASB normally rely on the early manuscripts. It's not always cut and dry. The meaning is exactly the same. It is this, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, all of you. All of you need it. What is grace? A topic that is oftentimes covered at the beginning of Paul's letters. He oftentimes, if not every time, he writes a letter He offers grace and peace typically to his audience. Grace being God's unmerited favor. And this is exactly what we need as we are waiting for the Lord to come for us quickly. We certainly need his grace. 
And God has given it to us. Whether we know it or not, we are, as believers, we are walking in His grace. First of all, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is the number one tool that we have as believers in our kind of uh, spiritual tool belt, if you will, is the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, or a, a better translation is, if as is the fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Praise the Lord for that. I don't lose the Holy Spirit within me every time I sin. Every time somebody cuts me off on the highway and I get irritated because all I want to do is get home and that's <laughs> not, a, not a great attitude to have, I know. But uh, I don't lose my salvation when that happens because the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is indwelling me because I am a Christian. And that, will, that can never leave me as a, as a church age Believer, we're not like David or, or Solomon in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit could come on people and then leave from them. We don't, we don't have that same issue. That's the incredible blessing, the incredible grace of living in the church age. We are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that this ought to guide us in the way that we live our lives. He says to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, whom you have from God. You have it. As a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And not only that, he's given us spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 6 through 13 enumerates several of the spiritual gifts. As a believer in Christ, he has given you a spiritual gift. Uh, Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts, every believer has a gift and they're different. We don't all have the same gift. Thank the Lord for that. We're not all the same. The world would certainly be a boring place if we were all me, or we were all you. <laughs> the world wouldn't be the same as it is. Thankfully, he's made us as individuals and he's gifted us as individuals. And it is according to the grace given to us, Romans twelve six. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. On He goes from there, and eventually it, it, we see that the purpose of these gifts is not so that we can be jealous of one another, or I wish I had that gift or this gift. No, it is for the purpose of loving one another and serving one another in the church. And, and this is why he gives us his Holy Spirit and gives us these gifts to serve one another. And this is how we live as believers. We live by God's 
grace and the grace that he gives to us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we are to be living by grace. We are to be living by faith in Christ and what he's done for us, trusting in him moment by moment, uh, reading his word, applying it to our lives. When it shows us that we're doing something wrong, we confess it as sin and receive forgiveness and, and press on in this life, uh, trying to be conformed to his image. We do that in his grace. And we have that uh, for us until Christ comes again for us. So what ought the church to be doing in the meantime before Christ comes again? Seems like sort of an appropriate way to end our study of the book of Revelation. Well, we ought to be teaching and applying the word. That's what Paul told the Ephesians to be about in Ephesians 4.12 also a chapter on spiritual gifts. There's a lot of controversy on gifts in the scriptures. You only find them described in four places in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Uh, And this isn't meant to be a complete study on spiritual gifts and these kinds of things, but nevertheless, we can easily take away what is important uh, to God for the church. And Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, he talks about giving of, of teachers and uh, prophets and apostles, these kinds of things. They're given for the equipping of the saints, verse 12, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Does that remind you of some of the things we studied last week? It does me. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are to be learning God's Word, applying it to our lives so that we can love one another. As after all, this is... This is the key for the church. Loving one another within the church body That is what is the implication there. When uh, Jesus tells the apostles, John 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. I'm not saying that we, <laughs> that we ought to be hating poor people and don't even uh, have anything to do with them. Of course that isn't the case. Or people outside of the church. Of course that isn't the case. But if we love one another within the church body the way that God wants us to, other people will be drawn to that and hear the gospel and be saved themselves. That is the purpose of the teaching of God's word so that we learn how to, to love one another and live for him in the meantime, doing good deeds. Titus 2.11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Revelation 22.21. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, knowing that it could end at any moment. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And notice this, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That has to be you and me as people in the church. We need to be zealous for good deeds, loving one another, looking for Christ to come again for us because he is coming again for us quickly. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That is everything that I know about the book of Revelation. And it is, it is a book that is written for us, for believers in Christ, so that we can know what's going on in the world today. We can s- clearly see that the world is on a collision path with the things that are written in the book of Revelation. We see the stage being set right before our very eyes. So what ought we to be doing. We ought to be loving one another and being a light for for God in this world with the time that we have. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for this ancient text that seems to be describing the 21st century world. And we just pray that as your people, we would be faithful, that we would Uh, be conforming our minds and our hearts to the image that we have of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. I just pray that you would do that work in us, in our hearts and in our minds, so that we can be uh, faithful servants for you in this world. We, We, of course, look forward to your coming again for us. And we thank you for your grace in the meantime that you have given to us. May we not spurn it, Uh, but may we be grateful for it and walk in it moment by moment until you come again for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.